You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas. And joining me, as always, from MMA Junkie in USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, we're doing something that we ain't never done before this week. Breaking new ground. That's what I'm hearing. History in the making. Pioneers. The co-main event podcast continues to evolve and break new ground, at least for us. Yeah, well, and sometimes figure out there was a reason we didn't do certain things. Maybe this will be one of those times. I got a, I got a good feeling about it, I'm going to be honest with you, even though we are here somewhat out of necessity. Well, you see, obviously there ain't shit going on. There, hashtag ain't shit going on. On top of that, see, under normal, under normal circumstances... During an ain't shit going on week, we would run all questions considered where we would take mail from the audience. We would answer the questions. We would, we would do an hour. Works, it's a, works like a charm most weeks. This week, we had some website issues. The uh, form that people use to contact the podcast is not operational. How did you figure that out, by the way? I figured it out this morning when I noticed that we were not getting any mail. <laughs> For the podcast. You know, up leading up to today, I was like, it's a slow week. Mm-hmm. Not a lot going on. I bet we'll get some Monday morning. The regulars will show up. Uh, then when that didn't happen, I was like, you know what I should do is go to the website and make sure that the contact form is still working. And it is not. Okay. So there's that. So here we are. The thing that we're doing that we have never done before, Ben, in response to this uh, crisis. Wow. Co-main event crisis is uh, we're live streaming the show, available to everyone. That's right. Not just Patreon subscribers this week. We've got some listener mail questions, people who snuck in under the uh, an end around, around the fact that the form doesn't work. We're hoping that the people who watch the live stream will, will fire off some questions. We're just going to... We're going to do it real loosey-goosey, man. Let our hair down. Stretch our legs. Well, and if people don't feel mo- motivated enough to get in here and ask some questions. I will add this threat. I just went on vacation for a few days to Boston. And if there aren't enough questions, I'm going to tell you about my vacation. And a further warning, I didn't really do much. Didn't really do anything that interesting. So you could be in for a nightmare scenario here, Chad Dundas. If people don't start... I'm holding you hostage, pretty (laughs) much. Well, you hold me hostage every single week. (laughs) So that's nothing new. Uh... If people don't start firing off questions, you're going to tell the story of your trip to Boston, and I will start talking about taking my kids to the Western Montana Fair yesterday, where okay. we rode the rides and looked at the animals, and I got shit to say. So, Well, I also took my kids to the Western Montana Fair, and again, there's not a whole lot to do there either, so there's not really that much you can tell. Although, did you happen to see the guy with the display? At the Montana, where well, I don't even know See, what this is supposed to be. You're giving it away for free right now. I know, but you're I supposed can't, to be using this as a threat. I can't help it. It's some kind of like metal works, for lack of a better word, art decoration. It seems to be like meant as home decor because it's okay. too big to be anything else. Yeah. But the messages, for example, like one was the silhouette of like an assault rifle, and it said, "Heavily armed, easily pissed." I did see that. 
actually. I did see that. The same guy had the same thing with the same assault rifle, and it said, stay the fuck away from my daughter. Which, it's like, I want to see who's buying these, because they should not be allowed to own guns or raise children. Like, that's what they've told me by their decision to buy them, if it's, you know, unironic. If it's an unironic purchase. I did threaten to buy my wife a black tank top that said, uh, too blessed to be stressed okay. on it. Nice. Didn't follow through with that, but it's it's one of the things that happened at the fair. Uh, I also noticed we were walking around the fair, and my wife and I heard some young man call out to a woman who could not be seen from where we were, but he called out to her by saying, hey, big booty Judy. No, he did not. Yes, he did. And first my wife was like, God, I'm glad I'm not Big Booty Judy. But then you're looking around and you're like, now I'm wondering, who's Big Booty Judy? You see a lot of candidates, but you just don't know. We've already given it away for free. I feel (laughs) like we told all the best fair stories right there. All right, let's do a little housekeeping and then we'll get into this thing properly. Don't forget, everybody, the uh, co-main event podcast book club, wherein we will all be reading the novel Fletch by Gregory McDonald. That goes down Friday, August 31st. Fletch is now available everywhere that books are sold, including the ebook version, which you can get for your Kindle. I also heard somebody on Twitter got at me said they found a building where you can just walk in, get a copy, and walk out as long as you promise to bring it back in three weeks. Can you believe that? Wow. that's What kind of magical place would that be? They call it a library. A library. All right. I binged the whole thing uh, on my my trip, on my plane ride. You read the the whole thing? That's right. Really quick read. It is a quick read. Although, you're the one who's telling people that they don't need to worry about it. They could jump on at the last minute and read Fletch. I'm the one telling people, get out in front of this thing. Yeah, you want to get out in front of this thing. I mean, especially because it's been a couple years since I read it. Five, six years maybe. Some things, there were some things maybe I didn't quite notice that I need some time to let sink in, a little, kind of marinate on a little bit before I talk about it. Because there's some some stuff where I'm like, this was a, a questionable choice on the part of the author, Gregory McDonald. Well, that's one of the things that I'm looking forward to talking about yeah. on the book club. Because I believe Fletch was published in maybe like 1974. I think it was like, like 76, that. something like that. Times have changed, mm-hmm. but... Not so much that some of the stuff Fletch is doing in Fletch would be kosher back in those days. No, right? Like no, it's not, not like it's not like generationally we've moved beyond the things that Fletch is doing. They were fully still wrong yeah. at the time. Gregory McDonald statutory Fletch. rape of a young drug addict, perhaps. So we'll be talking about that stuff Friday, August thirty first. Get in. You don't want to miss it. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, we're going to have some special guests on the show. So, yeah, the third ever co-main event podcast book club. We will be gauging the success or failure of this and then moving on to perhaps more book clubs. Yeah, who knows? Ben, tell the kids how they can get down with the Patreon if they want to. Well, Chad, they can go to patreon.com slash co-main event. There you'll find all sorts of fun extras that uh, just regular listeners to the podcast might not know about. Occasional serialized noir fiction, live streams such as this one. Uh, soon to come, some extra CME merchandise that we'll be rolling out. All sorts of great stuff. Patreon.com slash co-main event. Be a friend of the podcast. Enough preamble. We're already getting some questions here. Well, let's roll this. Let's roll out some of the uh, listener mail ones. Then we can go ahead and do the uh, do the comments that are coming in from the, from the, where is it? The Patreon website? That's right. Okay. Let's do this one from Devin Scott first because we want to start 
with the most important stuff. <laughs> MMA is full of cliches, writes Devin Scott, and it's fair and it's fair share of eye rolling, but at least there is not the the same canned answers slash interviews that come with other professional sports. But how many sports have guys like Rusamar Christian Balharis, whose career ends up as a cautionary tale of what not to do, and looking like some cartoonish Japanese cartoon character? Have you seen the recent photo of Rusmar Balharis that I believe was taken after his loss at welterweight? And what are your thoughts on his statement that a failed cut to 170 pounds nearly quote-unquote killed him? The guy's 5'8 and looks 40 pounds over these 170-pound limit. Ben, this came out while you were in Boston on vacation. Did you see the picture of Paul Harris? Of course I saw it. I was love your, it. Was your first thought that it must be photoshopped? Because that was mine. You look at it, it just doesn't look like it could be real. It looks like like he's dressing up like the evil version of Husmar yeah. Balharas, which I don't know. I kind of thought that Husmar Balharas was the evil version of Husmar Balharas, but he also like he, the cartoonish description is apt. He looks like the guy who beats up Bugs Bunny when Bugs Bunny accidentally ends up like in a, a pro wrestling match. It's he he's downright scary and yet stylish. Got the mustache, got the the hair on fleek. Yeah. As the kids would say. Yeah. Uh, it's a situation where Paul Harris's body has, has reached freakish proportions. And his head has not. Right? Like, Paul Harris's head has generally remained the same size. His body has gotten much, much larger. Would you say suspiciously larger? I don't think there's anything suspicious about it. I think we all 100% know exactly what's going on here. Vitamins and prayers? Vitamins, prayers, and probably a new strength and conditioning coach. Yeah. He's probably doing the thing where you put a chain over That's the uh, bench press That's bar. That's it, yeah. So it gets heavier as mm-hmm. you pick it up because the chain comes off the floor. Just That's making huge gains that probably way. What it is. Probably using those exercise bands. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Probably what it's doing. Got the bands. Getting a full range of motion. And now he's looking in the mirror every morning going, God, I wish I'd known about these bands sooner. Be a heavyweight. It's probably mostly diet. Probably eating clean for the first time in his life. Yeah. Brown rice and chicken breasts. Got a, lot of, a lot of protein yeah. in the diet now. New protein diet. Ben, why don't you start rolling out some of those questions over there? Okay. Uh, from Henrik Nilsson, what do you make of Khabib, Habib's recent tomfoolery, humiliating hobos, and getting daddy a visa? Okay. I couldn't watch this because uh, my empathy factor. I have a hard time watching a lot of videos on the internet. This was one of them. But my understanding is that Habib Nurmagomedov was going around offering uh, homeless people money to do stuff. Yeah, like, like push-ups kind of, and like stuff. Like a 70s uh, variety show. Right. Starring Habib Nurmagomedov as the, uh, as the host. I mean, if you told me that this is a, a current variety show in, in, you know, in, in some, certain parts of the world, maybe it's a variety show that he's starring in that, that airs in Dagestan right now. We don't even know about it. Okay, yeah, that's a good point. I can see that being a hit on the local stations. Whatever the Dagestani local stations are, I mean, seven and thirteen. As far as they like, what do you make of it? It does uh, felt like another example where you're like, oh yeah, we don't really know these people that well, and sometimes you just can only look at them and shake your head. Well, see, that's a good point though, right? Because Habib Nurmagomedov up to this point has enjoyed uh, a certain panache with MMA fans, right? We like this guy. He's, He's got kind of like an ice-cold trash talk thing going on, deadpan, uh, the beginning of the of the Conor McGregor hype video package where they ask him, Habib, what happened between you and Artem Lobov? And Habib says nothing, and then he breaks out that little smile. Right. 
popular. He's yeah. a popular guy. Referring to things as number one bullshit. We're into that. Then you start to see him, to see him, I guess for lack of a better word, exploit homeless people, if that's what ha- what is happening on this video that I have not watched. Do you feel that, like, uh, gives you a different feeling, a different sense of Habib Nurmagomedov? Less fun. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's definitely not more fun. Uh, yeah, I don't feel like it should need to be said, but uh, do not lord your money over homeless people and use it to make them the object of ridicule. Uh, it also, though, just suggests, like, that there's something about it there that he doesn't get. Because I think that he thought he was just being entertaining and funny, because they re- make the video and post it, right? So it's not like somebody caught you doing it and you didn't know that they were paying attention. I mean, you thought that this would be a cool thing that other people would be into. Um, hopefully... This just becomes a learning experience for Habib. Well, yeah, and let's also be honest, this probably isn't the most tone-deaf thing thing we've ever seen an MMA fighter do. That's true. So if we're going to jump all over Habib Nurmagomedov for making this video where he clowns on hobos, we should also probably say we've seen worse. Not that that necessarily makes it okay. True. But it's it's not the bottom of the barrel for us. Terrence Davidson asks, what would your walkout song be, and pre-Reebok, would you have any props or costumes? Well, I've, I've said all along, kickstart my heart, Motley Crue, and I would like to have some pyro that goes off when the drums come in. <laughs> well, you don't want much, do you? You just want them to rearrange the entire setup for you. We are dealing with a fantasy scenario here. I don't really see the need to limit myself. Also, I'm dressing up like Shawn Michaels in one of those vests that's made out of mirrors. Okay, see, that was going to be my next question is, if you're coming out to kickstart my heart, how much denim are you wearing? Because it better be a lot. I'm wearing denim from waist to mid-thigh. <laughs> okay. And that's it. <laughs> that's Did it. I mention that I'm going to fight in a pair of denim, denim cutoffs? Maybe white ones. I don't know. See. White denim cutoffs that show just enough thigh. I feel like that's already too much. And a belt. I'm going to have a big-ass belt. You can't fight in a belt. There's your, there are rules here, goddammit. Again, fantasy scenario. Well, if I get in a tight spot, yeah, I'm taking that belt off and I'm using it as a weapon. <laughs> well, okay, that won't surprise anybody. All right, what's, you. what's yours, smart guy? Let's, you're dreaming small over there. What's your, uh, well, obvi- your walkout? Obviously, I come out to Ain't No Hollaback Girl by Gwen Stefani. That, that I feel is obvious. Okay, yeah, that's, that's what I would have guessed for sure. Also, I'm thinking, obviously, series of masks. Like I'm gonna, I'm gonna have three, four masks. Okay, like a Russian nesting doll situation with masks. Right. I'm gonna take off a mask. I'm gonna take There's off a mask. smaller mask underneath the the one you just took. That's off. right. Yeah. And so, really, it just becomes a question of the type of mask, uh, the the order in which the masks appear, and we're gonna need to block out about 18 minutes for me to make it to the down from the. The entrance to the cage. You're taking your time. I'm taking my time. I'm stopping. I'm removing. We might get pretty deep into the Gwen Stefani discography now that I think about it. Just put the whole album on? We're going to album rock that? Whatever whatever album that was on? I still think fondly of watching Akihiro Gono at a New Year's Eve event that I went to in Tokyo. One of like the dynamite New Year's Eve events at the Saitama Super Arena. And, you know, of course he had a whole choreographed dancing routine. But it took him like 10 minutes to get to the ring, and he kept, like, he had an outfit on first, and he, like, tore away the outfit, and then he had a pair of shorts on. And you're like, okay, so those are the shorts he's going to fight in. And then he makes it 15 more feet, stops, tears off those shorts, slightly smaller pair of shorts underneath. And you're like, okay, so those are the shorts he's going to fight in. By the time he got in there, he fought in, like, in a Speedo. And 
it was it was quite a performance. So basically, you are admitting right now that you're just boosting. You're just boosting this idea. You're biting this style. Pretty much. I, I think instead of doing shorts, you're doing masks. You, you can't do better than Gono when it comes to the engines. Remember when he fought John Fitch and he and his cornermen all came out in the evening gowns and did a choreographed dance routine? Yeah, Comple- I do. Completely unappreciated in the UFC. The uh, Hall of Batgirl was the lead single off Love Angel Music Baby. You, why are you acting like you're telling me this? Like, I don't know this. Lamb. Now, see, I think this provides us an interesting window into the psychology of Ben Folks. Do you know when Love Angel Music Baby came out? Do you know when it came out? What year? Okay, hold on. Let me kind of locate myself in time. Uh, 2004. That is correct, sir. Boom! November 12th, 2004. Which also, I mean, I'm just laying out there. It might be the time Ben Folks wants to sort of freeze frame. The time I was happiest? Yeah, maybe if it could be 2004 for the rest of your life, maybe you wouldn't argue with that. Okay, all right. Um, here's one from uh, Matthew Pizana. With the Yair Rodriguez versus Zabit, Zabit Magomed Sharapov fight coming up. It's not that easy, is it? Shut up. What should be a fight for the, would, and for what should be a fight for the future of the featherweight division? What other fights lined up for the second part of 2018 match two fighters who look to be the future of their division that we should be looking out for? Well, that's a very specific question for two guys who don't have the schedule for the rest of 2018 in front of them. I got the schedule. I don't. I mean, more or less. I don't know. I don't have every single fight that I'm looking at. But uh, it's a tough question because that one is kind of like uncommon in its ability to do that. And yeah, Rodriguez wasn't crazy about it no. when, the, when the idea was thrown out. I mean, like, I, I feel like you see some fights that are close to that. Like the next one coming up, the one at the end of August, the Justin Gaethje versus uh, James Vick. Mm-hmm. That one feels like a kind of, we're going to learn something in a different way. Yeah. Like is James Vick really ready to be that guy in the division? And is Justin Gaethje going to turn into like the quickest cautionary tale? Because it seems like one of those things is probably going to happen. Yeah. What happens to Justin Gaethje if he loses that man? Like, uh, is that three in a row for him? If he if he loses that fight? Yes, that would be, I believe so, right? Because he, you know, based on this very exciting fighting style, which I think we all like from Justin Gaethje, he rolled into the UFC on what could be described as a head of steam. Like, he was one of the, you know, the anticipated free agent signings uh, when it happened. And you and I, I would venture to say that, like, we don't, it's not like Justin Gaethje has lost that interest. We're still just as interested in seeing Justin Gaethje fight, I think, as we were when he came into the sport, although the the picture of him that is developing is is maybe as a, a guy who's not necessarily about to be the lightweight champion, but at the same time, you tell me Justin Gaethje is fighting, I'm I'm gonna be there. Right, but the, the question we have also been asking because it would be three in a row if he loses because he lost to Eddie Alvarez, lost to Dustin Poirier, and after each one of those, it seemed like we said the, the same thing where we're like, hey, not the greatest thing to, if you're trying to build up to a title shot. But I'm still watching anytime that guy's fighting. And yet, there has to come a point where you lose enough where people are like, well, all right, this isn't as fun anymore. I don't know if three in a row is that point. It has been for other people, but then he's more exciting than almost all those other people. I do wonder if it has maybe a certain chilling effect on other fighters who are considering going the Justin Gaethje route. Because one of the things we liked about him is not only did he have that exciting fighting style, but he would... Very open about saying, like, look, I'm going to lose eventually doing this. I know that I'm probably shortening my career doing this. 
but this is the way to do it. Go out there, be a fun fighter, really make sure that uh, you're a, a marquee person people want to see. And yet other people who are younger than him and still coming up the ranks, they've got to be watching that and paying attention to how it plays out. Because if it ends up where Justin Gaethje was hot shit in 2017 and then by the end of 2018 it's basically over, that's something they're going to want to take into consideration. Not, not that these necessarily fit the bill, but let me lay three fights on you from UFC 230, okay. which is coming up November 3rd from Madison Square Garden. You're going to get middleweight contender fight Yoel Romero against Paulo Costa. All right. So that will have some... The That, that one's for the... Uh... Getting off the bus title, right? The yeah. Looking good, getting off the bus world championship. Yeah, it's not going to be a fight so much as they're just going to go out there and do a pose down. You've got to have a pose down for that one. And then at the end of it, obviously, someone breaks the trophy over the other guy's head. Right. Uh, you're also going to get Dustin Poirier against Nate Diaz, allegedly, at that same event. <laughs> Doesn't really feel like for the future of the division, but okay. You're also going to get Derek Brunson versus Israel Adesanya. So, like, depending on how those three fights shake out, those could be meaningful contests in terms of what comes next. Yeah. That's interesting. Well, and also we actually just, Brian Coughlin's question, thoughts on Gaethje versus Vic. We kind of already touched on that one. Um, here's one. I mean, we didn't necessarily talk about the matchup, though, right? No, oh, okay. It's an interesting matchup. James Vic, uh, one of those guys who's really good and yet isn't the first person that rolls off our tongue when we talk about the future of that division. True. I still think he could be a problem for Justin Gaethje. I think he's a problem for a lot of people. Yeah. And he might be specifically a big problem for Justin Gaethje, well, just considering how they both fight. And it's also another problem for Justin Gaethje is when you have committed yourself to being like this kind of fighter and you've built an entire identity around it, really, you can't bail on it. You can't be like, you know what? I suddenly remembered that I'm good at wrestling, so I'm going to go out there and do that. Uh, and I don't see him doing that. And so... You make things a lot easier when you let the other guy know what to expect. Even if the, what he has to expect is a little bit of terror when you're just constantly coming in and bringing a bunch of heat, getting right in his face, never taking a backward step. If he can get comfortable with that terror, he can work with it because he knows that that's what's coming. Um, question from the Great Dane. Bring it. What are the main three things the UFC could do to bring back the good old days when we were all shitting wild men? I'm still ride or die, hashtag CME, but losing day-to-day -day interest in MMA happenings. I want to be brought back into the loving of daily MMA happenings, but I need the UFC to meet me halfway. I don't know if there are three things. He seems to assume that there are. I can think of one okay. right off the top, and that is trim down the number of live events. Okay, so the exact opposite thing of what they plan to do next year. Yeah, exactly. Well, don't you think, though, like, the, the thing that the UFC really had over boxing when, we, when people like us were first attracted to the sport and first became hardcore fans was that not only would the best people fight the best people, but you would get events where you wanted to sit down and watch every single fight. Right. And you could sit down and watch every single fight, and it didn't take all goddamn day. You weren't going to be there for eight hours. So, like, I think you, you kind of do yourself a disservice by flooding the market with MMA fights, even if that's what people say that they want. I think that there was a certain magic in, you know, having one sort of, like, FS1 slash Spike TV event per month and one pay-per-view event per month. So you were getting an event once every two weeks. Uh, you knew all of the people that were fighting. It felt more like a quote-unquote event when you got a big pay-per-view that went off like gangbusters. Uh, and it didn't, it didn't feel like you were going to lose the thread. I feel like there's some, you know, the, uh, some stuff that has just happened recently to me seemed like clear evidence 
that the UFC has kind of lost the room in a lot of ways. One of those being the low ratings for the most recent UFC on Fox event, even though it looked awesome on paper and then all of the fights were in fact awesome. Right. The ratings just were in the toilet, which makes me feel like, okay, like ain't nobody even paying attention anymore. And then of course you roll into, uh, you know, your UFC 226 buy rate was lower than, than you might've expected. And then I don't know if we have a buy rate for UFC 227 yet, but you get Demetrius Johnson against Henry Cejudo and, uh, TJ Dillashaw against Cody Garbrandt, two fights that should have hardcore fans super excited, but not an event that's going to hit a home run in terms of pay-per-view buy rates. just makes me feel like uh, you've kind of lost the room, sort of, and, and and that's unthinkable. That would have been unthinkable uh, several years ago that like you could lose the audience like that. Well, I don't think it's just a matter of having too many events. I think a lot of it is the way the UFC approaches the business now, which is just as a content production business. Right. And I mean, that is part of it though, because that, that's why they want to have so many events and, you know, stacking 12, 13 fights on every event. They're just creating hours and hours of content because they can, and because they can do it fairly cheaply. But also like when you have stuff like the, the Reebok deal and the general like homogenification of UFC fighters, homogenification, you got me. Yeah. Nailed it. Uh, but you're not either you're not taking the time to spotlight individual people in an individual sport or you're actively not doing it because you don't want them to become big enough stars where they can play hardball negotiating wise and then you end up just like building up a star for Bellator to take later on it you're kind of just treating all these people as interchangeable parts right because that's in some ways easier for the UFC to to run the kind of business it runs but it also has an effect on fans where they're just like Okay, so it's just another fight night of just some guys up yeah. against some other guy. And that just doesn't work for fighting. Yeah, and I mean, I would say that the thing that exacerbates that, though, is the, like, tumult of the current live schedules. Like, you don't have any time to learn who these people are. Like, the as we've said a lot of times on this podcast before, the UFC roster right now is such an embarrassment of riches in terms of talent. you got guys everywhere you look, guys and women, everywhere you look, that are just tough as hell and like seem like potential championship contenders and you don't even know who they are. You forget they exist until they have a fight. And then you remember, Oh yeah, this person, they're really good at fighting. It's just like, I feel like if the schedule was contracted, if you had more, if you had fewer things competing for your attention, like we would have more time to invest in learning who all of these new people are. Many of whom I would wager have, uh, interesting personal stories since almost no one comes to mixed martial arts without one. Uh, but we just like, we don't have the time to learn any of that stuff or to really like, uh, meditate on what we just saw or like think, get excited for the next one because it's just one thing after another. Right. Uh, here's a question from Chuck Turtleman. You guys think Weidman should have gotten the shot over Kelvin and what happened to that guy's career? He was smashing everyone, broke my spider. That's my spider, by the way. Uh, and then became quote, just a guy. Would love to hear you discuss. If I'm Chris Weidman, I I am a little bit pissed off that everybody's just going to forget that I went in there and beat Kelvin Gastelum. They're like, okay, we're done with you, Chris Weidman. You've had your day. Now you kind of get shuffled back into the lineup. Yeah, the story of Chris Weidman is, it's really unique at this point. I like, I mean, there was a, you, you think immediately of Johnny Hendricks as a guy who kind of like sprinted to the title. And we thought it looked like he was the future of the division and then immediately fell on really hard times. Uh, Chris Weidman 
while maybe not quite so stark in terms of his personal story, feels like a guy who's really been forgotten in the, like in the story of the middleweight division right now. And I know, you know, some of that is injury. Some of that is time off, but like when this dude sprints to nine and oh, and he's beaten everybody in the UFC. And frankly, he's like a, uh, he's almost like a Chael Sonnen style grappler in that he can go out there and take you down even when you know that's what he wants to do. But at the same time, Weidman has offensive submission skills. So, uh, you know, he was beating people like Tom Lawler and, uh, uh, Mark Munoz on his way to uh, contender status, not just by like taking them down and grinding out uh, decisions, but he's like stopping all these guys. Tournaments Munoz was incredible too. Yeah. And then like, you know, he has the two fights with Anderson Silva, both of which were weird. He had two weird things that happened. Uh, although the second fight where Silva suffers the leg injury, in my opinion, is the fluky one. Like everyone tries to act like the first win at UFC 162 was a fluke when it was actually just a knockout. Right. And then suddenly Anderson Silva breaks his leg in the second one, and we're all like, okay, well, I guess Chris Weidman is the legit champ. That proved it. Yeah. Uh, And then, you know, it doesn't immediately fall on hard times because he beats Leota Machida and Vitor Belfort, but then three losses in a row, he loses the title to Luke Rockhold. I don't know what Chris Weidman can do, if anything, to get that kind of momentum back. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, it seems like the way... We've seen it done in the past is if you can hang around until somebody else falls out of a big fight and you get back in there. But there are, there are a lot of really good fighters in the middleweight division right now. A lot of good, interesting stuff happening. I also think Chris Weidman beats like 95% of those guys. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about Kelvin Gastelum then. 26 years old, obviously the up-and-comer. He's got back-to-back wins right now against Michael Bisping and Jacare Souza. Earned fight of the night bonuses for both of those. So obviously nothing to sneeze at, but at the same time, does he feel rushed? Does it feel rushed to you a little bit? I don't know if it feels rushed. I mean, I, I, as far as time-wise and his career, I feel like, sure, let, let's find out. Uh, I don't think he beats your boy Bobby Knuckles. I think Robert Whitaker is better than you know pretty much everybody out there at middleweight right now, but there's a lot of interesting fights you could put him in. I can see how that one is an interesting fight, but I also... I'm not sold on Kelvin Gastelum as a middleweight, in part because of that that Chris Weidman fight, where you realize, okay, a bigger, stronger, better grappler at middleweight can still do that to him. Right. He didn't, yeah. So if you were Chris Weidman, are you are you like rooting for Gastelum to become the champion since you just beat him in July of 2017 and stopped him? I should say. Yeah, or maybe then you're worried that uh, he will do anything he can to avoid you. I don't know, but it's it's a tough spot. I. I would be pissed off about it if I were Chris Weidman. Um, question here from Christopher White. I think that Joanna, former champion's best path to fighting Thug Rose is to attempt to make a run at 125 and offer Thug Rose the chance at being the first lady champ champ. Discuss. I don't hate that idea at all. No. Yeah, like that, that seems like it might work, especially uh, Joanna Jacek seems to be in like kind of an unenviable position right now in that she's still really, really good. Uh, she got stopped by Rose Namajunas and then their second fight, she lost a unanimous decision, but it was a close fight. She, as she has, will never stop saying, believes that she won that fight. And then she beats Tisha Torres uh, just a few weeks ago. And it's like in this position where like Chris Wyman, it feels like she probably beats almost everybody. And yet at the same time, 
you're not just going to turn around and run Ioannia Jacek versus Rose Namajunas 3 when you she's already 0-2 against her. So yeah, there's been some talk that she might move up to 125 and uh you know that you, this might be absolutely right that her best chance is to go up there win the title there and then uh propose a super fight since that's all the rage these days. I would I would be interested in that. I'll just say that. Um from Brian Coughlin, speaking of exercise bands, how does El Kakui get back in the lightweight title picture? Quote, back in the mix, as it were. Now, see, I wrote about this just earlier today, and I think it's tough if you look at the situation he's in now, because he declared himself cleared for combat, all caps, of course, in that one. Up style. Uh, uh, but you look around at what's going on at lightweight. The next title fight's already booked. There's no guarantee that whoever wins that is going to defend it against an actual lightweight contender afterwards. Like, you, whatever the UFC says now, you can't tell me that there is zero possibility of winner versus George St. Pierre, or, depending on who the winner is, winner versus Nate Diaz. Like, those kind of things could definitely happen in the lightweight title picture. So you can't just count on, like, okay, I'll be next in line after that. Then you look at the other contenders who he might try to fight, like guys like Dustin Poirier. He's booked against Nate Diaz. You go down the line, and it's like, it's either people he's already beat, uh, or you know people like Eddie Alvarez is coming off a loss, or everybody else is already booked. Like, what are you supposed to do if you're El Kakui? Every time Tony Ferguson posts one of these videos of him working out, my first reaction is, oh, this is how he gets hurt. But it's like, not. Like, every he time he posts one, it's like, did you see the one he just posted where yes, he's like, I know he's I doing know the thing where you put the bar across your hips? And you do the thruster thing, and then he's like going straight into like bench press on the on like a soft mat, and then he's doing like weird hollow holds, kind of where you like you put your arms over your head and put your feet up. It's like an abs exercise, but he's doing it with the bar in his hands. It just looks like his shoulders are gonna pop off his body at any point, and he's doing like weird crunches with it. Every time I watch it. Just like, what I want to know is why. That shit ain't good for you, man. Why? I'm at home yelling that at my computer screen. That shit ain't good for you. Um, of course, those are my 40-year-old shoulders talking. Right. I'm not out here uh, as a professional athlete, Tony Ferguson style. Well, I mean, maybe that's the the ultimate irony, though, is that he's out here, like, doing jumping jacks on uh, a yoga ball with th- three plates on the squat rack on him, and that's not what hurts him. He trips over a cord and gets hurt. Possibly because he's wearing sunglasses inside. <laughs> uh, and he's writing an upstyle tweet as he does that. Do you know the thing that Tony Ferguson has going for him, though? What's that? You know when the last time he lost a fight was? Ten fights ago? May 5th of 2012. Okay. So if Tony Ferguson just keeps doing what he's been doing, at least in the cage the carousel is going to come back around to him at some point. Okay. But Even though we are now in this weird position where uh, Connor back. And so there's a, there's the uh, potential that we're about to have a, like a fork in the road. Right. So say Chad Dundas is Tony Ferguson's manager. Mm-hmm. You're, you're taking the chomped cigar out of your teeth in order to give him some career advice. So yep. what you think we should do next? Well, first I'm saying, Tony, let's get a, Let's get a new sports medicine person in here. Let's get a let's get a strength and conditioning coach in here. See now you're you're messing with what's working. He's gonna fire you. Well, why was I hired in the first place? <laughs> That's a good question. It's a very good question. <laughs> anyway, 
I mean, for Tony Ferguson, the point is stay healthy and keep winning fights, right? That's right. all you got to do. Well, is that all? All I have to do is everything? But are you saying, like, hey, let's take whoever the UFC offers, if it's, like, number 12 ranked lightweight whoever it is, whoever they got available, give us a warm body. We're going to go out there. We're going to style on him, piece him up, remind everybody that El Kakui is one of the baddest dudes at 155. Or are you saying, no, we're going we're gonna to pull the move where we go out there publicly and say, we're not taking any fight unless it's for a title fight because my guy was an interim champ, and that's what the interim title is supposed to mean, is that you're next in line. Never lost it. So give us our due. Or is your advice... Stay healthy and stay ready to pick up the phone at a moment's notice because somebody's got to fall out of one of these fights. Yeah, and I like I don't necessarily think that those two things are mutually exclusive, right? You definitely want to be around and be healthy in case Habib Nurmagomedov pulls out of this Conor McGregor fight, or you know the other way around. You want to be that guy who steps in and can be the injury replacement. At the same time, if that doesn't happen, like Tony Ferguson could get into kind of a sweet gimmick here, right? He's still got the belt in his personal possession, even though it's been stripped. Everybody's got a belt, though. Uh, but I'm saying, like, you, you could do a lot worse if you're Tony Ferguson than to keep bringing the belt with you, keep talking about how you're the champion, and refer to all your fights as title defenses, right? I mean, you could easily fa face the winner of Dustin Poirier against Nate Diaz, depending on, you know, how everything shakes out, and refer to it as a title defense, and people would be kind of into that. I mean, it's been done, but yes, this would be at least a little, little more legitimate version of it's, it. It's all been done, my man. It's all been done. <laughs> uh, here's an interesting one from Benjamin Howell. The MMA gods grant you a boon. I think it means a wish. Do you use it to, one, ban interim title belts for all time, two, cancel the ultimate fighter, three, end the Reebok deal? Wow. Well, you know, we got a little glimmer of uh, what life would have been like, right? Because there was a short period there where we thought the Ultimate Fighter was coming to an end. Yeah, we rejoiced a little too soon, perhaps. And then Dana White pulled the rug out from under us, talking about how it's still a big brand and a million people watch it. No. Not, neither of those things is true. Interesting, though, that instead of ending the Ultimate Fighter, what the UFC did was buy an enormous new fucking building to like control the production values and make the Ultimate Fighter bigger, better, badder than ever before. Which... So, Again, that's one way to do it. Shout out to all the fighters who've been told that they don't have the money to pay you because of this huge sale that just happened. They just bought a goddamn building. Yeah, 130,000 square feet, I think is what they said. So maybe rethink that one. Wait a second. What were my choices again? End the Reebok deal, cancel the Ultimate Fighter, uh, ban interim title interim belts. Interim title belts. Wow. You, there's not a bad choice on there, I don't think. <laughs> See, actually, as much as we've complained about interim title belts before, I do think that there is a time and a place. I just think it's way less often than the UFC has used it in the past. Where the, So then the interim could be three months. And then they'll just make the interim belt disappear if it's no longer convenient. I think that there can be a case where like, if you have a champ who's injured and out for a year and a half, go ahead and have an interim title, but then make sure that when the champ's ready, he fights the interim champion. I think that that has worked in the past. That can work. It's just that they've gotten a little too uh, liberal with their interpretation of how that goes. So that's the one I would be least likely to choose. Cancel the Ultimate Fighter. Okay, yeah, I would like... I mean, I, I don't pay attention to it now, so it's not like it would make a huge difference to me. The only thing is, like, I wouldn't have to watch any more tough finale events where I have to sit through the video packages about these people who I don't care about. Um, 
So I got to go end the Reebok deal. I think you make the sport measurably better if you allow for a little bit more expression of individuality. Yeah, the, I mean, the uh, the real positive in ending any kind of like exclusive apparel and licensing deal would be maybe getting the fighters some money back. I mean, that would be the real uh, point in the favor of that one for me. Uh, I, I don't know that the, like the, if you're just talking about the future of Reebok, I don't know that it's totally hopeless that they would get, you know, at least the, the look down moving forward. Like things have gotten so better. It's been a while. Than when they first started. I mean, right. Well, the, when they, when they first started, it was the white with the black stripes against the black with the white right, stripe. Right. Did it take Reebok too long to figure out that like mostly the shirts should look like you ripped off uh, Roots of Fight? Yes, it did. <laughs> or you just like do uh, throwback shirts with the, the old school UFC monster guy on there. Ulti man. Yeah. Yeah, but now that we've done that, you know, now that the, the, you know, the, the look of the product isn't quite as stark as it once was, you know, you're starting getting to get some kind of awesome stuff like the uh, TJ Dillashaw snake shirt and the uh, OAM fanny pack and the uh, uh, O'Malley tie-dyed shirt. Like, I think Reebok is, is, has made progress. Still don't have any Tito Ortiz flame shorts type level branding that actually goes on inside the case. That's true. When you, when you have the Reebok thing, the two things that you lose are that the fighters don't get sponsorship money anymore, which is a serious loss for a lot of them. And it's a lot harder, harder to sort of set yourself apart from the pack. Right. Yeah. So like ending that, maybe you get some of that stuff back. Maybe I'm just so grounded in, in my distaste for the ongoing ultimate fighter that I can't see beyond that. Cause yeah. I would cancel the shit out of the ultimate fighter. That is, that is very possible. Uh, question from Brad Lewis. How good is TJ Dillashaw? In my opinion, he has shown to be one of the most tactical and technical MMA, technical fighters in MMA history. Am I overstating his abilities? Discord. Maybe discuss? Discourse? That's what he was going for, is discourse. Yeah, there won't, I don't know that there will be much discord here in our discussion of TJ Dillashaw. I think we're in agreement. You shut up, you idiot. He's really, really good. That's how good he is. Yeah. Really, really good. I think the the book is still being written there. Uh, but I do think, the for one thing, the, the conventional wisdom on it has changed. Because remember when it was like, T.J. Dillashaw left Alpha Male, went followed Dwayne Ludwig. He's a snake in the grass. He's betraying his team. And a lot of that was a narrative perpetrated by the team Alpha Male guys. But uh, now that you're seeing it play out over a little more time, it kind of seems like, oh, hey, maybe T.J. Dillashaw knew what was best for T.J. Dillashaw. Yeah. Uh, and certainly just continuing to win fights and be the champ does not hurt, right? Like that's puts like a, the sheen of victory over everything else. Uh, but yeah, like, and I think we overlooked him coming off the ultimate fighter. You know, he lost the, uh, in the finale to John Dodson and since then has been just really, really good. As I said before, uh, and now has worked himself into the position where, uh, he's the champ and every, you know, the, everything at Bantamweight runs through TJ Dillashaw. He's got some interesting opportunities right now, uh, with the Henry Cejudo call out. Uh, it does seem like now that the smoke has cleared, the future is bright for TJ Dillashaw, uh, and maybe not so much for the guys that, that, uh, opposed him. Speaking of which, here's an email that we got from Dave Claymore. With Cody Garbrandt's defeat, where does Team Alpha Male go from here? They have had a revolving door of head coaches, and the only one that brought them success, Dwayne Ludwig, they badmouth. 
With each personal attack on TJ Dillashaw, they looked more and more like the jilted ex-girlfriend that can't get over how you've just not moved on but got married and had kids with someone else. The only prospect is Northcutt, and he's not ready for a top-ten fighter. They just seem like a gigantic mess right now. As for Garbrandt, does he stay in the division or move up? He'll only be a gatekeeper as long as Dillashaw has the belt. Discourse, please. Okay. Uh, those are pretty good points there. But, well, how long is TJ Dillashaw going to have the belt is one of my questions. Because I'm looking at it and I'm like, could be a while, honestly. If he, you get him in there against, uh, you know, maybe he fights Henry Cejudo, which more and more it seems like a lot of people kind of coming around to that idea. Uh, if he fights Dominic Cruz again and can hold on to the belt past then, then who's going to take it from your boy TJ? Who's going who's gonna to take the title from Tilly Dills then? Yeah, well, I mean, ugh. we talked about this last week, and uh, in our discussion, we neglected to mention Marlon Moraes uh, as a yeah, yeah, okay. as a contender. We talked about Rafael Asuncao. Uh, we talked about some other options. I don't know. We just like uh, flat forgot to mention Marlon Moraes, who's obviously a super inter- interesting contender and is a guy who should be in the discussion there. Not that I'm necessarily nominating him as the guy who takes the the belt from Tilly Dills, but uh, you know, there's some good fights at bantamweight. I don't think that it's like easy. You know, it's not easy coasting now for TJ Dillashaw. He's going to have some tough fights there. Uh, he does at this point look fairly dominant. Uh, and again, if you are booking the men's 135 pound division, you could do a lot worse than have a guy who's going to beat two, three, four guys and hold on to the title for a while. Uh, and, you know, probably getting ahead of ourselves to say the guy can have sort of like a Mighty Mouse style run, but I don't think. Uh, it does a disservice or, you know, anything negative to the division to have a, a somewhat dominant champion. I think we like those. People like dominant champions. What do you think about Team Alpha Male, though? Like, you know, there was a there was a time when Uriah Faber was, was fighting, when they had Chad Mendez, when TJ Dillashaw was on, on the come up. You know, they had uh, a, a bunch of different lighter weight fighters that were uh, all sort of uh, in the mix. Uh, and now it feels a little bit like Team Alpha Male is sort of an a- afterthought. Like, have they had their day, or are we just uh, we going through a bit, a little bit of an awkward down period here? Well, I still think that T- Team Alpha Male has a lot to recommend it as kind of like a magnet for talent below a certain weight class. And that was, I think, one of the things that made it really good was that if you were, you know, lightweight or below, you're looking around for a good team to join that has fighters in your weight class that you can spar against. It had that, it also had good coaching, and it had Uriah Faber who could kind of bring a spotlight to you when he yeah. wanted to, especially when there was like a financial upside for him in bringing that, that spotlight to you. They have lost some of that a little bit. I mean, like there's been a lot of coaching turnover at Team Alpha Male, and that's not often a great sign. And then if Uriah Faber starts to seem like he's either like less active or less of a kind of MMA power broker in that sense, then maybe you start to lose that a little bit. Also, maybe you do get to a point where somebody else might be looking at the team going, well, I don't know if I want to go train with those guys because most of those guys are people I'm looking to fight here in the next couple of years. So maybe that happens too. But I still think that there is like, there aren't a whole lot of teams that can specialize that way and bring those kind of few things but coaching turnover is what would worry me the most. When you see that, that's a, a troubling sign about gym culture often. Here's a follow-up uh, to the discussion that we had last week about Cody Garbrandt, a question from Josh Montgomery, 
who writes, in regards to the chat this week about the uh, scrapping of the flyweights, remember we also talked about that, uh, I want to follow up with the CSAC's release of official fight night weights. According to the report I read from Mark Raimondi, uh, both Demetrius Johnson and Henry Cejudo came in basically at the same weight as Cody Garbrandt. Demetrius Johnson weighed 142, Henry Cejudo weighed 141, Cody Garbrandt weighed uh, 142 for his bantamweight title fight. Uh, the two other flyweights on the card both in came in heavier than Garbrandt. By my count, only three fighters on this card did not blow past the weight class above them, and several blew past two weight classes. Only six came in under the California State Athletic Commission's recommended guidelines of not gaining more than 10% back. So if the major promoters and athletic commissions want to get serious about weight cutting, about curbing weight cutting, wouldn't you think that cutting men's flyweight would be a logical step in an overall weight class reorganization? First, I wanted to say, we talked about Cody Garbrandt and his future last week, and we both sort of thought that he was bigger than he was. Because remember, we said maybe he had yeah, to think that's about going up. If Garbrandt is really only walking around at 142, then uh, maybe moving down is an option for him if he's weighing the same as Henry Cejudo and, and Demetrius Johnson. Yeah, it does feel somewhat like unconscionable to recommend that any MMA sure. fighter cuts another weight class. Yeah. I'm most intrigued by the how many fighters, according to this, blew past two weight classes above them. Yeah. That is considerable weight gain there. People are cutting a lot of weight. That's for sure. But I hope that uh, more commissions start doing this because that is kind of eye-opening information to have. There's no reason not to have that information except that if you're scared that uh, we might get a glimpse of what is actually happening once we have it. Yeah. Uh, I'm I'm all for that. Also, uh, a few things that keep coming up, uh, just general questions that different people are asking about when we're doing the book club. For Fletch, August 31st. Yep. See people mentioning that one. Um, also about, here. here is a good actual book club suggestion from Cursed Diamonds, who says, I have a book club suggestion, if you don't mind. As one of the hearty handful who read the Hellbound Heaven Sent assignment for what yeah. was to be the second book club event, I ask that our efforts be noted yeah. by changing the numbering of the podcast. Tank's book is one. O'Connell's book should always be number two, even though it didn't happen. It's the UFC 151 of book club events. It was a wreck, but it should not be erased from history completely. You are 100% correct. You are. You know what that is? Hellbound Heaven Sent is like our Calgary. Remember when they brought a stinker up to Calgary and Dana White was like, we're going to make it up to you, and then he never did? It's kind of our, it's kind of the same thing with us with the book club with Hellbound Heaven Sent. Well, it's a, it's a point well made. We will we will make it noted that the Fletch, well, actually it's number four because we did, number three would be Tito Ortiz and Chuck Liddell's books. Right. Another thing that should never be erased from history. No. How could it possibly? Um Let's see. Here's one from Tim Barons. Is there anything the UFC could do to make the fighters actually come together and organized? I thought the Reebok deal was enough of a slap in the face, but apparently not. Uh, I've heard managers and other people who are trying for the organization effort for a long time make this point that basically at this, after all the things that have happened, what could you do that you haven't already done? What could you do and what would you realistically want to do if you're the UFC that could finally push them over the edge to be like, okay, now we've had enough. And that's why I've heard people make the argument that it's not going to happen that way. Right. It's not going to be like the UFC abuses the power to the point where they finally all come together and organize. That it's more likely to happen with these other ways, like Leslie Smith's challenge uh, of employment classification under the uh, National Labor Review Board or the antitrust lawsuit. That 
those are really like slow mechanisms and not as like dramatic as a whole bunch of fighters all standing up together in like an I am Spartacus kind of moment. But those are the more likely avenues if it's going to happen at all. One thing that I've been thinking a lot about recently is the idea that doesn't it actually have to be like an MMA fighters association and not necessarily a UFC fighters union? Because in the wake of the Lauren Murphy situation, and she herself has said that like uh, people signing cards to join up. With... You mean Leslie Smith or Lauren Murphy? Lauren Murphy is a different person. Oh, okay. Leslie Smith is the one who was pushing for her uppers and yeah, spearhead. Yeah, there you or go. Whatever. There yeah. you go. I got confused. Project spearhead. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Leslie Smith has said, my apologies, by the way, uh, that people signing up for Project Spearhead has has slowed down tremendously since she got kind of let go from the UFC. And like, if if you're trying to have a union, and the only thing that the company has to do to break the union is like fire you from the UFC. That's pretty easy to break, especially since people get fired from the UFC all the time uh, for various reasons. It seems to me like if you were going to have an actual union that that has any sort of bargaining power, number one, it would probably be good to get to people before they make it to the UFC. You need to like sign people up while they are up and comers. And number two, like it kind of has to be sport wide. You kind of have to have like a professional mixed martial arts fighters association, which is obviously much more difficult to organize. But at the same time, like the more I think about it, the more I keep coming back to the idea that I kind of feel like that's the only way it would work. Yeah. But that brings some considerable challenges along with it. Just because the whole thing is fraught, right? Right. But I mean, if, if you're dealing with one promoter, basically, then you all have some similar working conditions that you can unite around. But if you are trying to get somebody who, you know, fights at like Tachi palace, and somebody who fights in UFC main events, their situations are so drastically different. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, you would have to... Uh, I mean, they do it in the entertainment industry, right? Like, uh, the uh, union union uh, represent, the union represents, like, almost everyone who works in Hollywood, right? And that counts for people that, like, uh, you know, are, are grips and gaffers and lighting guys and, like, all the way up through Tom Cruise and whatnot. So I don't think it's not like it can't be done. You just have to have to have, you know, it would take a lot of, of effort and thinking to get it done. You would have to have kind of like a, a, uh, a SAG minimum. The screen, yeah. screen actors guild has like a minimum that it's, uh, people can get paid. Uh, and I like, I'm not telling you that it wouldn't be an, an enormous organizational undertaking because it would. A uh, question here from Christopher White. Considering the UFC's ongoing fuckery, do you ever envision a scenario where Scotty Coke and the folks at Bellator get within striking distance? They have the tournament, great prospects, and could potentially pick up Eddie Alvarez and Chris Cyborg in the next few months. Discourse? This is a question I think about often because you see Bellator doing good things, yeah. making some strides, yeah. picking up free agents, you know, selectively, not going crazy, just snapping up absolutely everybody, but it's you have seen a little bit of a change in mindset from a lot of fighters where they no longer think of it as like, if you go to Bellator, it's because your career basically hit a roadblock in the UFC. And so you had to suggest you had to settle for a second place Mm -hmm. like that. You can go over to Bellator and maybe end up happier and better paid and have a good productive career that people care about. And, you know, some more interesting competitive things start to come along with that. Like this welterweight tournament where it's like, kind of copies the format that we got excited about with the heavyweight tournament, except 
the fun is not as ironic. Right. The, the, it's kind of genuine athletic competition more. So, but does that ever get to a point when you're like, okay, I, I as a fan am regarding Bellator as, if not equal to the UFC, at least pretty close? Or will it always be a kind of thing where maybe we care about a few Bellator events a year, but it's always the little brother? It's really hard to imagine a reality where the Bellator brand has become the UFC, right? Where you go to like a party and you tell someone what you do for a living and you say, I write about mixed martial arts, you know, Bellator. To, you're not going to any parties. Well, not anymore, but this used to happen back when I was had a life. Uh, all the parties I go to now feature uh, mermaid cakes and or usually some kind of costume theme. Bouncy house. Yeah, bouncy house is a big one. Mm -hmm. uh, trampoline sometimes. But, like, can you imagine a scenario wherein you went to a, to a gathering and you told someone what you did for a living? You're like, I write about mixed martial arts, and they gave you a quizzical look. And the thing that you say now is, you know, like the UFC. Right. Could you imagine saying, you know, like Bellator? And having them be like, oh, right, right, yeah, well, everyone knows Bellator. Okay, fair so point. So it's, it's kind of impossible to imagine that scenario. But I don't think it's impossible to imagine Bellator really narrowing the, the gap between the two organizations. I don't think it's impossible to imagine Bellator being a thriving mixed martial arts organization uh, that occasionally is on par with the UFC. And I also don't think that like it takes the kind of wholesale change that maybe we think that it would sometimes. Because like, they've already done a lot of really good stuff. I don't think you need to, you know sign 150 UFC fighters for Bellator. The only thing you have to do if you're Bellator is like put on five or six really good events a year. And then all of the rest of it can kind of be uh catch as catch can in terms of, of uh, hooking an audience. And like I've said a lot in the past, if I'm Scott Coker, I'm not thinking about overtaking the UFC. What I'm thinking about is hanging around and being a successful and if Viacom wants you to be profitable MMA organization and just seeing what happens, just yeah. hanging around, just keep it going, keep the Bellator wheel spinning and just see what happens. Because we, right now we are maybe closer than we've ever been at least since like the early two thousands of a scenario where the people who own the UFC decide that it's not worth it. Yeah. Right? That was unthinkable when the Fertitas were running it. But it's not out of the realm of possibility that uh, WME IMG might just be like, well, we need to sell this to somebody, right? And if you're Scott Coker, what you want to be when that happens is around. Yes, still viable. Right, you just want to be there. Yeah. Uh, here's an interesting question from Brian Coughlin. I see that Ronda Rousey has a role in the new Mark Wahlberg film, Max Payne 3. Pretty sure that's what it's called. This is a joke. It's not actually called that. Which MMA athlete turned actor embarrassed themselves the least? Ooh. Randy Couture? He was Toll Booth. Do you have Wait, any thoughts that, on this? Is that the only one? Is that the only option? That's, well, that's the only oh, option. I thought we were going to do it. I thought Randy Couture was the start of a multiple choice uh, situation. Who else goes on that multiple choice? Well, Rampage, right? Okay. He's in the A team. Uh, you got to do Carano. Yeah. Movie star, Gina Carano. For. Skyfall? No, don't do that. Remember when we watched Skyfall and yeah. it was amazing for like 15 minutes? Um, Bisping? Who's in Twin Peaks, right? Okay, I didn't see. Security guard in Twin Peaks. How was he? Uh, fine, yeah. It was, well, wasn't in it very much. George St. Pierre, he was in the Captain America movie, right? Yeah. 
Who is the least embarrassing MMA actor? Boss Rutan can always do Boss Rutan. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Randy Couture is probably not a bad answer there. Because not that I was a big Expendables guy, but like, it's not like he stuck out as the no, terrible guy in the he Expendables. He was not the problem with Expendables. Randy Couture did nothing to harm Expendables. That is absolutely true. Is that what you, I'm saying Randy Couture. Is that your answer? I guess so, but I feel influenced by the phrasing of the question. This one's from James. It's so depressing hearing Stipe Miocic request the rematch that will not happen unless Brock Lesnar gets hit by a bus. Oh, wait, it says get hits by slash eats a bus. I would love for Stipe to say fuck it and just plow through Curtis Blades or whoever is next. Uh, what say you on all matters, Stipe? Yeah, I, I feel similarly because I'm like, yes, Stipe, you are right in a different world. In a in a just logical sport, yes, you would have a good claim for an instant rematch. In this sport, ain't no way unless something happens to Brock Lesnar. Though there's a very good chance that some between now and January that Brock Lesnar could fuck this up somehow. Yeah. Very good chance. So I would stay ready in case that does happen. But just if the UFC has their way, yeah, no. That's it's probably not gonna happen. So yeah, if I would love it if Stipe got angry, angrier than he is, but decided to take it out on the rest of the division instead of just getting like angry at the UFC from home. Like if he did, if he went on a like contenders ass whipping tour instead of a legends ass whipping tour to just be like, all right, who else is there? Curtis Blades? Fuck it. I'm going to go on out there and fuck that guy up just to show you all that there, I'm going to lay waste to the entire division under the champion just so you will have no choice. I'd be 100% into that. Yeah, I don't know that Curtis Blades is a guy we need to go thrown around uh, as an example of someone who would get plowed through, since it's sort of sort of starting to seem like Curtis Blades may also be real good at fighting. Uh, but kind of like Scott Coker, I'm going to say the same thing about Steve Miocic, in that in the heavyweight division, the thing that you want to be is around. <laughs> like, you just want to be there, being around for when... Uh, Brock Lesnar falls out of his fight due to a failed drug test or something. You just want to be able to uh, pick up the phone and call Dana White and Sean Shelby and Mick Maynard right then and be like, hey, it's Stipe. I'm around. In case you guys need anything. Yeah. Saw this thing about Brock on the MMAJunkie.com. Just wanted to let you guys know I'm around. Anywho, hit me back. Yeah. It's about 2.30 Central Time. <laughs> a question here from Matthew Evans. Okay, I have a serious question. Mm. What's a good age to start your kid in BJJ? I have a five-year-old son and thinking of taking him, but part of me thinks it's a waste of time until he's about seven. He can run pretty fast, climb, uh, climb trees a bit, but hardly knows how to eat spaghetti and barely speaks English. Okay. <laughs> so I, you're going to know a lot more about this than I am. Yeah, I, I identify with this. I also have, like, I have a five-and-a-half-year-old daughter, uh, and, you know, we will wrestle and stuff at home, uh, things like that. But also, every once in a while, I'll imagine, like, okay, should I try to get her interested in BJJ or something like that? And then the two things that go through my mind are, one, that does not seem like it aligns at all with her interests. Um, so it would be basically like me forcing my interests upon her. Um, but also, two, a lot of it would depend on how they do a kid's program. Because I've seen BJJ gyms try to do a kid's program like kind of seriously where they're like, okay, here are the techniques we're trying to learn. Like we're actually trying to really teach you jujitsu. And with kids that young, it just doesn't really work. I mean, like you've seen kids that young play soccer and it's, they're not really picking up any aspects of like strategy or the points, like the even idea of the game. Like the only way to do it that I've seen it actually work at that age 
and work, I'm putting in air quotes here, is by it mostly being like a fun, we're screwing around, but we're also wearing geese at the same time kind of yeah. thing. And I see, I'm not going to try, I don't want to be super gender specific here, but I think that like with my daughter who is about to turn six, her top question would in fact be what are the outfits? Like, oh, that's the best chance for getting my daughter interested. But then yeah. again, I think of Julie Kedzie telling me how she got into martial arts as a kid because her dad would go to like Taekwondo or karate or something. And she was like, I wanted to wear the outfit. Yeah. But well, then got there and realized, I love this. My daughter has not really been into sports at all. Like previous to this summer, we put her in a camp where they did a bunch of sports. And now it seems like she's kind of like has a budding interest in some of these sports that she did this summer. But like when we were at the uh, like. I believe it was like the homecoming parade for the university a year and a half ago. Uh, she saw like a local Taekwondo gym was in the homecoming parade and they were all wearing their geese and they were walking and doing snap kicks and whatnot. And she was like, Oh, I want to do that. Look at that. But again, I think it was because she saw like a, an army of girls a little bit older than her all wearing these white outfits. Yeah. Well, but see, that is kind of like my general rule of thumb when approaching some of this stuff with my kids is, like, before I try to put them into any kind of, like, program. I mean, one thing is, like, swimming lessons. Like, you need to learn how to swim because it might save your life. But with other kind of, like, recreational stuff, ideally I want them to ask me if they can do it. Not for me to be like, hey, guess what I signed you up for? And I already paid, right. so you're going. Yeah. Uh, my daughter has been super into rock climbing at this camp that she's going to this summer, which oh, just no. surprised the hell out she's of me. She's going to be a hippie. She's going to be a Missoula hippie. I'll take it. I will take it. <laughs> Well, I bet she's a good rock climber. She's got long arms yeah. and legs, doesn't have a whole lot of weight to haul up. The, I bet a kid's uh, – your, your strength-to-weight ratio maybe makes rock climbing kind of a fun thing. She said to me when I picked her up, Daddy, I'm really proud of myself because I was scared to go on the rock wall, but then it turned out that I'm a great rock climber. And, I, you know, I got a little got a little choked up. Maybe she's a prodigy. Hear your kids talk about how they're proud of themselves because they overcame their fears. She's going to climb right on out of this garbage pit. <laughs> Uh, did I tell you about when my son the other day said that he thought our house was so ugly that a burglar would not come inside? <laughs> and you were like, uh, this strategy is paying off. He asked me, he was like, Daddy, our house is so ugly that I don't think a burglar would come inside. Is that why our house is so ugly? And I said, yep. <laughs> Got to outsmart the burglars. No, I'd, I'd burgle the shit out of this place. I'm, I've been casing it. That's what this whole podcast is, <laughs> is about. That, Matt, you are casing it well. You are doing your homework. Um... All right, we've been going a little over an hour here. Yeah, we probably got about five minutes left. Okay. Um, wow. Chuck Turtleman says Bob Sapp in the longest yard deserves mention for... Uh, but see, Bob Sapp, actually not a terrible actor, is a terrible MMA fighter. So I feel like he's, he, he's kind of on the other end of the spectrum. Like He doesn't deserve consideration not because of his lack as an actor, but because of his lacking abilities and desire as a fighter. Yeah. Um. How about this from Kit Thomas? Besides Cyborg, are there any marketable Brazilian MMA fighters from the UFC? Costa? Hashtag times have changed. Yeah. There's a lot of really good Brazilian fighters, but as far as, like, do any of them kind of break through that next level of awareness among fans? I don't know. Well, it seems like the UFC has decided that Paulo Costa is, like, the next Belfort, right? Well, he looks good getting off the bus. He does. And, like, that seems to have a lot to do with it. But He's never thrown a strike that is not a power strike yeah. in his life. Yeah. It just seems like uh, they they have decided that he has a bright, bright future. Um, Amanda Nunez? Okay. I'm just going to say, like... The, but the UFC doesn't even like Amanda Nunez. No, that's true. That's true. But, like, 
I, I get she in, should be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, how about uh, also also from Matthew Evans, who has asked roughly fifty questions here? Is Kane Velasquez the biggest what if in MMA? Could have been the best ever. Hmm. That I'm trying to. Th- I feel like there must be a bigger what if, but well, there well, are. I mean, mixed martial arts is a a, a minefield of what ifs, right? I feel like you, there's a lot of what ifs you can ask about Dominic Cruz. Mm-hmm. Just because he lost so much of his career to injuries, Cain Velasquez, though, yeah. But like Cain Velasquez is a two-time UFC heavyweight champion. Like just because he didn't become the most dominant heavyweight in the history of heavyweights, like I've I've I have this feeling like we look at Cain Velasquez and we're like, oh, Cain Velasquez is like a failure. But like I don't know that that's necessarily true. Like he didn't live up to our expectations because of injuries, but he was still really good. He still did a lot. Right. But he wasn't the best ever. And it felt like maybe he had the physical capacity to be. Do you think Cain Velasquez could still be the best ever? No. What if he comes back and fights another five years? No, he, well, he won't. He will not do that. I don't think so. You think he's done? Do you think Cain Velasquez comes back at all? I think he comes back. But I don't think he's got another... I mean, at least not another five years of like active competition. I mean, he could fight... If he fights another five years, he'll fight three times in that five years. That's my prediction. Okay. And I mean, I don't think that that's a wrong prediction. That seems like the most likely thing. I'm just saying, Cain Velasquez, not quite dead yet. And, <laughs> okay. like, did pretty well when he was around. Fair point. Want to do one more? We have one more, or no? We probably have one more. Um, people commenting on your bookcase. It's a nice bookcase. Uh, I assume the comments are all positive about the bookcase, right? Really opened the room up. We used to have black bookcases in here that were much bulkier. We took them out. We brought this one in. Makes the room feel much bigger. I like the other one. Uh, this we one still got them. From you want to take them home with you? Twelve months from now, that meaning well, let's. I'm going to go ahead and edit this question a little bit. Just like, let's say twelve months from the end of the year, since it's going to work better for the question. So Looking the, back, the dawn of 2020. Who has had the best year, Bellator or UFC? Who's going to have the best? Yeah, let's say who's going to have the best 2019. Okay. To simplify the question a little bit. Hmm. That is an interesting question. The UFC has some theoretically big stuff lined up for the second half of this year. Uh, Conor McGregor coming back. If John Jones gets back, then you could start to really. Do some business for right. the UFC. Yeah. And plus you got, uh, you know, DC versus Lesnar, if that goes off uh, with an obvious, you know, no matter who wins that, I think you come out of it with marketable stuff you can do. It's so hard to predict, though, man, because as everyone knows, things can turn into a dumpster fire pretty fast. Uh, I'm going to, and plus, the, like, but you, the, the UFC, ESPN yes, thing starts at the say. start of 2019. The UFC will be on ESPN, which might in, lead to increased visibility. Maybe people are like, maybe yeah. there's a lot of those like, kind of just like general sports fans out there who, once the UFC is on ESPN, will be like, oh, yeah, hey, I kind of forgot about the UFC. That's still going on? I'm going to tentatively say the UFC will have a better 2019. Uh, I have a lot of suspicions and doubts about the ESPN deal, which I've talked about at length on this show. But I think that there will be an initial loft. Like, we'll, we'll hit the ramp of the UFC ESPN deal and kind of, like, soar for a while. And then, like the flying squirrel that we are, slowly start to return to. <laughs> well, MMA as flying squirrel might be the uh, 
most apt analogy you've ever made on this show. I'm telling you, if you want those bookcases, we still got them. If you like them so much, you can take them home. I could use some bookcases. You could use some decor of any kind in your home. You're going to start this now at the end of the podcast? You know what? You're going to open up this can of worms? That's going to do it for this week's Co-Main Event Podcast. Thank you to everyone who joined us uh, for the experiment of the live stream. It went off well as far as I'm concerned. I didn't see any of the comments. I imagine people are just mad as hornets. I've been, I've been uh, selectively ignoring the ones that call you out. Okay, good. A lot uh, of just disgusting things said about you. Yeah. Uh, that's... Most, mostly physical appearance. Yeah, no, I... I uh... Oh, a lot of dudes on the internet. They're hurtful because they're true. They are. That's the thing. That is the thing. Anyway, that's going to do it for this week's Co-Main Event Podcast. I believe by the time we come back next week, we will have a fight night on deck. That's right. The Vic Gaethje. That's right. That'll be coming up in two weeks. Shit will start uh, to go on. So we'll start to preview that stuff next week. and then uh, Also, we'll be getting ready for our book club episode. Book club episode number four. Let the history books reflect Fletch by Gregory McDonald on August 31st. As for right now, though, we are done, we are through, we are out. Okay, now that, I, now that I'm looking at the live stream, the, the bookcase is all right. But people are right that the stuff on the top shelf of the bookcase, you're never getting that stuff down. It's going to uh, get there until you move. Well, yeah, that's, those are toys up there. You try to have a classy bookcase showing off how smart you goddamn are to everybody. You gotta, there's no getting away from the fact that there's toys on there. You know that's what, just one of the things that happens, like, Fuck up and have three. Well, you can just have two, everyone.